Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Point me to a time or a place in history where one side has had a monopoly on the truth and has been 100% right. I can't think of one. I mean, right? So it's obvious that that would probably be true right now. And it's highly likely that the current progressive woke orthodoxy has some flaws. And it's highly likely that the current conservative orthodoxy has some flaws. So if you believe either of them wholeheartedly, you are wrong a significant portion of the time. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Josh Seps to the show. Josh is an Australian television, radio, and podcast host who shakes things up with his fierce intellect and infectious sense of humor. Josh's interviews with prominent figures and celebrities like Jane Goodall, Ron Howard, Russell Brand, and Neil Patrick Harris have attracted billions of online views and sold out event tickets. Currently, he can be heard on ABC Radio Sydney and on his award-winning podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. What an episode this was. We really didn't hold anything back in our conversation. Uh, We talk about lots of things that all surround the idea of thinking freely. In this social media age, it's become increasingly challenging to become an independent thinker. Our tribal nature and online echo chambers tend to reinforce ideologies we already believe in. Even the way we talk sounds scripted and produced. Well, not in this episode. Here, Josh and I discuss openly and freely how to generally search for truth so we can broaden our worldviews. 
We also touch on the topics of intersectionality, wokeism, ethics, and racism. But really, this conversation is about so much more. And the overarching thread that runs through all of this conversation is just the promotion of nuance and attempts at taking lots of different seeming opposite sides and looking at them as part of a larger whole and also not uh, completely identifying with your in-group and not completely hating your out-group. We hope this episode helps you uh, think more freely and powers you to think more freely. So without further ado, I give you Josh Seps. Hey, buddy. Hey. How you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm, uh, I got up from a nap, uh, so I'm still in uh, half dream <laughs> mode. Yes, I'm half, half in dream state and half in waking life. But it's okay. It's okay. This is a very philosophical take on things. We should always be in half dream state, half life. What is reality anyway, Scott? How do we know it's not all a dream, Scott? Tell me that. Well, actually, uh, my colleague uh, David Chalmers, uh, the philosopher, wrote a really good book that came out earlier this year called Reality, arguing that we're probably in a simulation. Right. Yeah. What do you make of the whole uh, the whole simulation thing? Have I just opened up a four hour rabbit hole that's going to open up? Are we going to plunge no. off? off topic for the next four or five hours. <laughs> we just don't know. The point is, it is entirely plausible that if you get artificial intelligence, or actually I should say re virtual reality, to a certain point where it's indistinguishable from non-virtual reality, then there's really no way for us to know we're not in a simulation. And the way that things have been going the past two years, it certainly feels like someone's fucking with us. <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah so which makes it which, with that shot the probability is much higher but it's I, like we reached some alternative timeline i also wonder though if we just haven't been too acclimatized or acclimated as you say in america to to a normality that was never actually historically normal that like the period between i guess the six the late 60s and probably maybe 9 11 or you know depending on where you want to count it the financial crisis or Trump, that that was just a short window. Like, I mean, if you'd been around in the 60s when Martin Luther King was shot and Robert Kennedy was shot and, like, the cities were burning, you would have been like, this is crazy. And if you'd known what a simulation is, you might have been like, we could all be in a simulation. Or when you found out in 1945 that the Germans had just gassed and incinerated six million people, you'd be like, what? This has got to be some kind of a computer game. Where are we? But they didn't have computer games back then, so they didn't know what that That's was. The point. So now we interpret everything through the prism of what the current technology is. And, you know, back when there were steam engines, everyone was like, the universe is just a system of pistons and steam <laughs> engines and, like, you know, circulating orbs and things. And now we're like, oh, that's so passe. We're futuristic. Now we understand about computers and simulations. So the whole thing must be that. And then in 100 years, we'll come up with some new brilliant theory and the universe will seem to conform to that one the reality is that we're extrapolating by how fast technology has grown in our lifetimes in my lifetime it's ridiculous the year i was born to now went from no computers existing <laughs> to us having this podcast chat and being able to see each other yeah. and and uh, through the virt through the <laughs> virtually i mean i'm seeing you like i'm seeing you, you. can see my floating yeah. christmas head above my gorgeous christmas sweater blending into the red background perfectly across the ocean scott across the world no i know I, I was thinking i was talking on one of my many appearances on the joe rogan um podcast one of my many seven appearances uh on the most popular podcast in the world just thought i'd mention that scott just thought i'd mention but that it's not but i, I also i should mention mm. it's not the most popular psychology podcast in the that's world true because 
that's what you're on right now. I know. Oh, I know. And and the honor is all mine, Scott. And I should say to listeners who haven't heard my show or Scott's fantastic appearance on my show, Uncomfortable Conversations, that uh, Scott's appearance on Australia's number one uncomfortable interview talk show hosted by a man wearing a red and green sweater, Scott was fantastic because I my podcast is the number yeah. one Australian interview uncomfortable show red green sweater show so you know we all have our number one scott we do we do in every in, in every mother's eyes you know or a lot of mother's eyes their child is that's right the number one when i was on uh, rogan one time i was talking we, i just my grandmother had just died she died on the eve of her 100th birthday she died at 99 and 364 days and she was born in 1915 uh during the gallipoli campaign Big, big day for Australia and New Zealand. Don't know if anyone in America knows what Gallipoli is. You can Google it. And I was thinking about the amount of, the number of things that she had seen in her lifetime. Like 1915, right? Nobody's flying anywhere. You know, planes are made of like canvas and cardboard and have big flapping wheels and like crash into the hill, you know, after they've been in the air for 20 feet. There was one car when she was growing up, when she was growing up in New Zealand, they would know they would see oh there's the car going by there's the car that someone rich owns driving past and then she had the space race cars became ubiquitous she had computing man on the moon nukes holocaust like everything and think of what had happened in the 100 years previous or the 100 years before that or the 100 years before that it's like someone's taken the accelerator dial and has just turned it all the way up it's in, it's incredible and then the most amazing thing is I was traveling through Europe shortly after that, and I'm wandering around Athens. Uh, a good buddy of mine lives in Athens, and I'm standing on the Agora, the birthplace of democracy, like on the northwestern slopes of the, the Acropolis, the first place in the world, in the Western world at least, where people came together and said, you know, maybe we should start sorting out our ideas but through discussion and discourse instead of just killing each other all the time. Maybe we should all have a say in this instead of being ruled by autocrats and kings and emperors. And that, I was just overwhelmed with how old that was and how ancient it is. And then I thought to myself, well, it's 4,000 years. It's 4,000 years, right? My grandmother lived a 100 you put my nana back to back, her lifespans, it's only 40. It's only 40 nanas since the dawn of all of Western civilization. It's only 20 nanas since Jesus Christ. Mm. It's only like three nanas since the Enlightenment and one nana since all of that stuff that I've just talked about. Planes, space race, cars, like computing. What happens in another 10 nanas, a thousand years? It's so short. There are a lot of points to what you just said, is what I should say. Like there's, you know, the, the fact that Homo sapiens are a mere speck in the, talking about the history of the universe. It depends. Do you want to zoom? How far do you want to zoom out? Or you can also zoom in on us, you know, in this generation, which is usually what I do in my podcast <laughs> as we talk about, about, <laughs> about this, this, what's going on right now. Yeah. Whose show is but, this again, um, Scott? Sorry, I just yeah. have a tendency to dominate the uh, conversation. Please, but, I mean, no, go ahead. No, no, I love it. I love it. I love it. But, but you know, it depends. The question is how far do you want to zoom out, right? Like you could zoom out even further and, and say Homo sapiens are really nothing. Um, but I, I think there's another point there 
which I do think we tend to extrapolate and think, look at what we've done in a thousand years. The next thousand years, it's hard to imagine what we'll do. But I actually do think there's a, a limit to what we will do. I, I think that, you know, we discovered so many things and um, and they, they're really radical, you know, compared to like a thousand years ago or even 10,000 years ago. But I think a thousand years in the future, there's, it's going to be probably more of the same if we still exist as a species. Humans will still be human in terms of basic needs, in terms of fighting each other, yeah. in terms of uh, the different divisions and tribes, right? Yeah, well, none of that has changed, has it? I mean, none of that has changed. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Who is it who says, who says like, we're, we're highly, you know, we have, uh, is it Dawkins who talks about us having godlike brains, but primate-like Sorry, godlike tools, but primate brains or something. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm, whoever said that, kudos to that person. We still have Stone Age minds, and you know, in terms of the evolution of our mind, um, happened mostly on a sort of strip of the savanna desert. And here we are in this modern world with all these technologies, and we're interpreting things through a, that lens. By the way, that that speaks to why tribalism is so big on social media. I don't like to use the word virtue signaling. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of that term, but. I don't, I don't, I, but why we see a lot of that is because like the consequences in the savanna of pissing off your tribe of 10 people was ostracization. You can do that. I had acclimatization and acclimation. You can do ostracization if you want. Ostracization. You'd be, you'd be ostracized. You'd be ostracized. <laughs> that sounds more sophisticated when I phrase. Isn't it interesting how you phrase things certain ways? It sounds more sophisticated in other ways. You'd be ostracized, you'd be ostracized from your tribe. Yes. You'd be left yeah, out on the yes. savanna to um, die. And that's a big deal. That is a big deal, you know? But but nowadays, it's like, we don't really think like, oh my gosh, what if that random anonymous uh, person on Twitter that doesn't even have a human as a profile picture, right? Like, doesn't like me. Mm. Well, who cares? Mm. But you can't, can <laughs> you? you so but you much? can't turn it off, can you? I mean, uh, you don't seem to be able to. We don't seem to be able to turn that off. Like, it, it, lands, as, it lands with as visceral and cutting uh, a, 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 a subjective sensation when you're being attacked Absolutely. by idiots on Twitter as if you're being attacked by people you care about. 100%. And have you noticed that those who seem to quote virtue signal that they don't care the most actually are the ones that care the most? So have you, you know, the ones that are like, I have no fucks to give everyone. Hi, everyone. Right. I mean, you know, like, yeah. but you know, people like, they, they're like so controversial and they'll say crazy stuff. They're like, I don't care what anyone thinks about yeah, what I say. Yeah. Then why are you on social media every second mm. looking to see what people say? Mm. <laughs> And it becomes deranging as well. And we all know some of those people who started out as dissidents or as like heterodox thinkers and have now just become total conformists for the for being provocateurs. There's like a clique of generally sort of alt-righty kind of provocateurs. Some of them are left-wing. Some, you know, I don't know, I probably shouldn't use the term alt-right because I get into trouble for using that. But I just mean that not to mean like uh, fascist or white supremacist, but this yeah. kind of parallel universe of shit stirrers and, and provocateurs who think that it's really clever and edgy to constantly be whipping people up and outraging people and getting you know and saying things that they think are controversial just for the sake of being controversial and we've seen those people and we've seen them descend over the course of really the past five years from being people who i respected to now being a number of them are just trolls essentially and have been captured mm -hmm. by the the right and so i i don't know how we avoid that because i think there's a feedback loop that you're pointing to there which is pretending not to care about what people think and mm. that pretense in itself becomes a shtick that cares very much about what people think 
Mm. Right. So now I'm now I'm playing the role of the person who I just don't have two fucks to give. Like I don't care. You know, I'm the bad boy. Everyone's become a kind of like Milo Yiannopoulos part, you know, three or something. And that becomes virtue signaling in itself. I mean, I, you know, this I'm talking about right wing dickheads, but <laughs> there's also the left wing dickhead phenomenon yeah. of people, you know, virtue signaling about how politically correct and woke they are. It seems like the silos that we're in and the tribes that we're in and the clubs that we're in are just drifting further apart and, be- and become self-reinforcing social media feedback loops where the incentives are all aligned to extremify ourselves. So, I mean, one thing that I'm trying to do in my media career on my radio show in Australia, on my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, and one reason I love your show, Scott, because I think you're doing a, you're on a similar mission, is to try to have conversations that like disentangle all of those siloed perspectives and have conversations that are, as we say in Australia, fair dinkum, meaning free from bullshit and are straight, you know, and are uh, a kind of uncomplicated by pretense and nonsense and tribal affiliation and clubs but because i don't know i don't know any other way of getting out of the problems that we're in unless we can escape the the kind of gravitational vortex of the social media pull towards pleasing our clique i very much share that mission i'm very serious about that mission i feel like anyone who is serious about that mission shouldn't be a provocateur so i think that if you are a provocateur by definition you don't genuinely genuinely care about that mission there are provocateurs who Queen, they're like, they're like, why is there so much division in the world today? Mm. And then they say, they say things that like completely attacks a whole group of people, and they're like, oh, I'm such a victim. Well, it depends what you mean by provocateur, right? Because some people would regard me as a provocateur for not caring about triggering the tripwires of cultural convention. You know, if I am having a conversation about one of sure. those red hot culture war issues. I don't know, like trans rights or something like that, then there is a very scripted way that you're supposed to speak about it on the left. And there's a very irritatingly offensive bad boy way that you're supposed to talk about it on the right by saying like, these are just, you know, I don't know, that sex is, it defines you forever and that these are just men in dresses or something like that. And then on the left, you're supposed to say that there's no such thing as women and trans women are women and you're supposed to mount a lot of platitudes. But I mean, I will just call the truth as, as I see it. Some people will regard that as being a provocateur. But the difference that I see is that my intention is never to provoke. My intention is to mm. be rational, cool-headed, try to understand the other side, try to give the benefit of the doubt, but not rehearse scripted lines of politically correct bullshit either. Yeah. So intentionality matters and it matters a lot. I think that's a very good point. You know, there are some Twitter accounts where they're they're intentionally just saying things to with the aim of riling up a certain group. That's what I mean. Yes, like, absolutely. That's the intention. Absolutely. That's the intention. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that really, really does upset me and has been on my mind lately is I despise the Twitter account libs of TikTok. I like despise with it like a, such a such a like <laughs> like I'm not the kind of I'm like Mr. Happy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like positive psychology. Yeah. So to get me actually despising <laughs> you takes that takes a lot. <laughs> that takes a lot. And and this is the thing is like I am all about talk I'm all about like appreciating differences. You know, I'm like a big supporter of the neurodiversity movement. When I see trans 
people I think, well, I actually put them under the umbrella of neurodiversity. I include them as part of gender diversity, which is part of like, you can be autistic and be on the autism spectrum. You can be on the gender diversity spectrum. So that's just how I think about it. So I, you know, I, I'm like, if you bully people who are just different, just because they're different, that really gets at me at a really core, mm. it gets me really, it gets me, it makes me angry. Absolutely. <laughs> like the, the Hulk. The importance of being able to hold more than one idea in your head at yeah. a time, right? So like, yeah. I mean, f for me, should we be teaching eighth graders that there's no such thing as sex and pretending that the that biology makes no difference, that there are no basic differences between the sexes and that there's no correlation between sex and gender and that you can pick and choose whatever gender you want to, to be? Or is that too confusing an idea for eighth graders to understand yet? And should we maybe include that as a university level kind of conversation but should we just assume that sex and gender are generally consistent and then when young people feel that they're not in their case, we treat them with care and compassion and we try to investigate what's going on, but we don't embed this as a fundamental principle of what we teach young children. Maybe we can all agree on that, but you can hold that as being your opinion and also say that on the other hand, my friend who has a son who was born as a girl, assigned female at birth, and from the age of two, she was saying, what are you talking about? I'm not a girl. I'm a boy. Always a boy. Always been a boy. This is a phenomenon that exists, that has existed everywhere, that has existed throughout all of time. There is this thing where there are young, young, young children from a very early age before they've learned any quote-unquote grooming or gender theory or anything. They are just 100% th I'm born in the wrong sex. I'm born in the wrong, like the, the, my sex doesn't align. And that is a phenomenon. That is a psychological phenomenon that we have to deal with. So we have to say, what are we going to, where are those kids going to fit into our culture? Are we going to demonize them and persecute them and ridicule them and hold them up to live lives of shame and hardship with massive rates of suicide and self-harm because they feel like they're broken people? I mean, like, screw that. It's not one or the other. We can have multiple ideas that may seem contradictory in our heads at once. And the job of us as responsible citizens, as members of a demos, of a democracy, is to come together and have conversations like this one, where we can flesh it out and go, okay, well, what is too much and how far is too far and how can we find the, the, the moderate compromise between these warring factions that we have, rather than having the factions in this war of attrition, where it's all against all and whoever wins is going to, is, you know, to the victor go the spoils. That's not how democracies work. That's not how cultures thrive. We can only sort it out through conversation. Yeah, I, I'm trying to find a tweet I wrote because I want to read it to you and see what you think of it. I wrote, controversial take. You can take issue with something and have a reasonable critique of it without calling it, quote, the downfall of Western civilization. <laughs> I put that all in the quotes. Not every issue is the biggest issue in America just because it's the issue you care the most about. Right. I wrote that because what I see is like, oh, my gosh, this stu this teacher is teaching you know, uh, a student about non-binary this specific thing is going to lead to the downfall of Western civilization. Okay. Can we just like take things case by case basis? Let's not like, there's so many cognitive biases going on in the world. There's, there's extrapolation, there's overgeneralization, there's black and white thinking. You go down the list of cognitive biases and you see it with everyone. You see catastrophizing mm -hmm. as well. Right. And now I'm not here to defend some things I do think are moral gray zones. You know, there are certain, certain instances where, you know, like I, I'm trying to think of a certain <laughs> instance actually. Um, where they, I think once they did show a video of a drag queen with a group of preschoolers and the drag queen was like naked. Right. There's like, there are extreme examples. The thing is I stop there. I don't, I don't then extrapolate and say all drag queens are 
are groomers. That's literally the definition of hate and discrimination. Mm. Do you well, know it's I mean? absolutely. I mean, it depends. Look, it depends on the prevalence, doesn't it? I mean, I suppose the reason why people are freaking out about that is because they're assuming that it's taking place in every classroom Everywhere. in in America. And if it were, then it would be a problem worth freaking out about. I mean, you know, Andrew Sullivan makes the the point that drag queens there there's a lot of misunderstanding about drag queens. Just as an aside, in this whole drag queen story hour thing. Drag queens are not sexualized creatures in their natural habitat. What drag queens are for people who aren't in the world of drag, and I happen to be married to a guy who's uh, who's sort of you know who has a lot of friends who are trans and a lot of friends who are who play up with with drag. What drag queens are are clowns. Mm, they're clowns. It's like Panto. Yes, Panto. They're a, they're, it's like pantomime exactly in the United Kingdom. It's yeah. it, they're hugely exaggerated cartoon characters of women. They're actually a little bit sexist if you want to look at it through that lens. They're taking the tropes of femininity and exaggerating them into these grotesque stereotypes, right? And they're mocking them and satirizing them. There is a small like band of drag queenery which will blend into, you know, sexual deviancy or whatever you want to call it or provocative sexual behavior. That of course has no no role. I mean that should have no place in the education of children. But the idea that you would have huge larger than life clown-like figures entertaining children and reading them stories and getting them, you know, encouraging their love of reading. There is nothing groomery or sexualized about that. You wouldn't say that if it was a clown. And, you know, largely the way that most of these things are being done is by men who are portraying female clowns. Right. I think that's right. And uh, there are a lot of misunderstandings about that. But you see what's going on. I mean, there's just this real judging of someone based on their sexuality because it doesn't fit within their idea of sexual purity or especially if you're, you know, a Christian conservative, right? Like they view any instance of a deviation from what they view as the right and proper God-ordained sexuality, any deviation from that is immoral. Well, isn't the risk there, Scott, that, that actually the number of people who believe that is not enough to create the heat of the culture war that we're seeing at the moment? The number of people who are actually religiously devoted to heterosexuality as the ideal and who believe that any alternative forms of sexuality or gender expression are deviant and should be you know, opposed for almost cosmic orthodox reasons. They're a small minority, but what's happened is a whole bunch of other people, the James Lindsay's of the world, you know, who are not religious have, I don't know if they've spent too, too long online or if they, if they are identifying something real that I, that you and I are too blind to see. But one way or another, they regard there as being a civilizational level clash of the forces of disorder chaos and authoritarianism on the left against forces of community family tradition and democracy on the right right and 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 they regard all of the fabric that has come together to build western civilization as being assailed by this crazy sort of quasi-authoritarian woke leftism that wants everyone to be everything and for there to be no structure in the world and for us all to be like just ping pong balls bumping into each other, choosing our gender, choosing our sex, sexuality, choosing our whatever. And they regard that as being a chaotic dystopia that forces its rules on everybody that is at the same time anarchic and also authoritarian because anyone who doesn't, who hasn't drunk the woke Kool-Aid is going to be excommunicated. And here, I think the, the, the left, although I'm, although we're being critical of the right, I mean, I have to put in a vote for the, the enormous own goal that the left has 
has made and the the failure of the left to articulate a traditional left-wing vision that appeals to sort of working class people all across the western world really and and the obsession the, the obsessiveness with which the left has begun to cl- to cling to identity politics and to the empowerment of minority groups as being its lodestar as being the light on the hill instead of how a working class family in Appalachia is going to be able to put food on the table or afford healthcare. Like those things are no longer the things that Democrats are talking about. Democrats are talking a lot about intersectionality and a lot about how you have to say the right things about, you have to use the correct transgender pronouns and you have to call Latinos Latinxes. And that is an enormous, enormously off-putting distraction that to me pushes this other cohort into the camp of the extreme religious conservatives that you were talking about. If we were just dealing with extreme religious conservatism as the as the problem, I think we would easily defeat them. The problem is we've empowered them to form a coalition with a whole swathe of reasonable-minded, vaguely conservative people who regard the excesses of wokeism as intolerable. So now we've got a much bigger a much bigger right-wing enemy than we needed to have. Yeah, I'd like to amend what I said then. Because I think a lot of it does come down to uh, my colleague Jonathan Haidt's uh, notion of moral foundations. Right. There are very different moral foundations. So a lot of it on the right has to do with it's it's considered disgusting. They're, uh, it's immoral because to them it makes them feel sick to see a transgender person for whatever reason. When I see a transgender person, I don't f- get sick. So I don't really understand exactly what what is so sickening about it. But but for for a good number of people, it gives them the actual visceral feeling of of um of uh, germs, you know, like, like that feeling, the same kind of feeling you see with germs or you see with something that's a, that's a pathogen, you know? In the same way that they did with, with gay people, you know, a generation ago, right? I mean, my lifestyle of being married to a man was, that's right. was gag inducing right. as recently as the 1980s or 1990s. And now it's not. And in fact, one of the great triumphs of the gay rights movement was to take it away from, take the conversation away from sexual acts and turn it into a conversation about gay people wanting to be normal and wanting to be clean, right? I mean, it, to, to follow this line of thinking, right? Andrew Sullivan's argument was, we want to be exactly the same as you. We want families. We want, you know, structure. We want to be part of the community. We want jobs just like the rest of you. Like once once you shifted the conversation away from from behaviors and you turned the conversation into one about having the right to be normal, like Andrew Sullivan's groundbreaking book was called Virtually Normal, in which he made the first mainstream case for gay marriage. Virtually normal. He wants. Hmm. He just wanted people to be virtually normal. That was the that was the triumph, and I think that was by turning off that disgust switch that you're talking about. Yeah, turning off the disgust switch, and you know, the left cares. Their moral foundations is about fairness, right? To them, fairness trumps feeling sick looking at someone who's different from you, right? So it's like, what trumps what within your personality yeah. structure. Yeah. And justice. I think they care a lot about justice, don't they? Well, yeah, they, yeah that's, yeah, I, I'm kind of a, making the two equivalent in a way, fair, fair enough and justice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's without, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give the most, I'm trying to steal a man the disgust towards trans position, right? So that we don't caricature it. I'm trying to. Sure. And I, I can say that there's other reasons as well why there are uh, critiques of the trans movement, the idea of trans. Um, I can see it from the point of view of um, those who I guess are called TERFs. You know, they're saying, well, there is a legitimate difference between a biologically born female and a trans female. Yeah. They they had different life experiences. They, they should have different rights, you know, to a certain degree. Like there's a different set of experiences that by the same reason 
that uh, you know no, we, that woman Rachel who identified as black and she was born white. Well, no one no one liked that, right? But but I don't. I still don't. No one's given me a convincing argument why that's really diff, you right, know, different. Right. You know, like, yeah. I mean, you know, Jermaine Greer, the great Australian feminist uh, who wrote the Female Eunuch in the nineteen seventies, makes the same. Has you know, she's gotten pilloried for making the same point, and and has actually been disinvited from writers' festivals in Australia for making wow. that point. She she her basically her basic point is there is something fundamental to being a woman that involves growing up as a girl in a sexist society. Yeah. Being a girl in a patriarchal society is a fundamentally life-shaping experience. If you grew up as a boy and then you later joined the womanhood, good for you, happy to call you a woman, you're not the same as someone who grew up as a girl. You're not the same as someone who went through puberty as a girl. Yeah, and 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 J.K. Rowling and Jermaine Greer are completely... Ex- so this is where I'm thinking, so does the disgust switch get activated by the left's insistence that what Jermaine Greer is saying is bigotry. Like, for example, I have a friend who's not trans who insists that it's transphobic, but is super, super woke, who insists that it's transphobic to have, to not want to sleep with a trans person. That if you, Scott, don't want to sleep with a trans woman, (laughs) right? Yeah. Who, I get you're like you're further explaining it to me. You don't want me you're to like, explain let me, it. Let me, let, me <laughs> let me explain no, exactly it. what will it inv- will involve and all the dangly bit. I get the argument because do we want to start calling everyone Genesis? Do we want to call everyone racist? Are you racist if you don't sleep with a black well, person? Yes, that <laughs> is like, that is another conversation we- that I have. Yeah, I mean, and you know what? I don't have no time for it because, like, a black friend of mine used to, who's gay would always say because there's a lot of racism in the gay com- in the like white gay white guys can get away with a lot more racism than straight white guys can i think there's a kind of really i think so i think there's a casual sassy kind of yes girl yes queen sort of white supremacy in the super camp gay world that is quite dismissive of people of color uh and openly so and so this black gay friend of mine was saying Look, you might think that you don't want to, you might just be like, oh, hey, you know, I'm not racist, but I just don't want to sleep with Asians. I just don't want to sleep with black guys. But his point was, well, you should probably interrogate where that comes from. Like, does that come from nowhere? Were you born not being sexually attracted to those people? Or through puberty and your youth, did you form ideals about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a sexualized being? And did that shape you? And because I'm quite fluid in my thinking about our sexuality in general, because I think I look at ancient Greece and ancient Rome and places where there's been a lot more kind of casual sexual fluidity between gayness and straightness, Paris in the 19th century and a lot of like South Pacific cultures and things like that. And because my own personal experience was one in which I had long and and, and fruitful and loving romantic relationships with girls and also guys. And then I sort of happened to find a guy who I wanted to spend my life with. And that was the person who I chose to be with because my experience has always been one in which I just assumed that I, when I was young, that I was uniquely open-minded in thinking that of course, attractive people are attractive and charming people are charming and charismatic people are charismatic. And who are we kidding if we don't think that there's some kind of sexual frisson when a young guy is walking down the street and sees a massive Abercrombie and Fitch billboard with a naked torso of a young man on it, there is some kind of arousal there that that we have been acculturated and trained to funnel into sort of maybe self-love or some sort of aspiration to have that body. 
But then in, in another culture, in another era, in another time, in another place, it's conceivable that that could land as attraction rather than as something aspirational, right? I do think these things are messy and they get influenced by culture. And in that respect, yeah, maybe my lack of sexual interest in a particular race of people is sort of fundamentally racist. And so maybe there is something in the revulsion that a straight man might feel towards sleeping with a trans woman that comes from bigotry or transphobia. And in another universe, they wouldn't feel that. But I just don't think you win any friends or you gain anything strategically in the cultural argument by demonizing dudes who don't want to sleep with a woman with a penis as being transphobic bigots and insisting that, you know, the only way to get on board the trans train is to is to go all in 100% with everything that the most extreme trans ideologues insist that you agree with that that's just not going to win the win the case you're extraordinarily open-minded to consider like the nuance and things so i really like that about you so let me just ask you this then because i i was wondering what your thoughts are on whether reverse racism exists i believe in reverse racism i don't believe in in this kind of new definition of racism that has come about recently where it has to be bigotry plus power i mean I don't think it's useful. I mean, I think if you want to say that there's a uniquely pernicious racism when racism interlocks with institutional power structures and sort of invisible cultural norms, uh, which some people might call, say, white supremacy, then that's that can be useful. If you want to say that it's uniquely pernicious when a majority white country that has a history of slavery and a history of Jim Crow and a history of racism, when a white person in that context expresses racism, that that's a particularly bad form of racism, then I'm fine with that. But you can't say that's the only form of racism and that when a, a black person is smashing up a Korean corner store because they hate Koreans or is setting a synagogue on fire because they hate Jews, that that's not actually racism because black people have never been the oppressors, because black people aren't coming from a position of power. Well, hmm. not only have you just abandoned reason and a command of the English language, in my opinion, and clear thinking, you've also alienated so many people from what they regard as being their common sense attitude towards racism and bigotry that you have you are never going to win over the population and you're probably going to trigger a white backlash against such foolhardy nonsense so what what game are you even playing at that point well that's an interesting question what game are you playing yeah i think that if you do play genuinely the game where you want to unite people and you want to have a kind of a humanistic approach as i like to take um well there are certain ways of thinking about people in the world that you're that, that naturally follow from that in my opinion um i i would like a world in which we didn't think stereotypically about uh, a person just based on knowledge of the color of their skin or, or even their gender, mm. you know, like in some, there's some world where you say, oh, Johnny's black and, and your mind is blank about agnostic about who Johnny is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, that shouldn't be controversial to say I would, I would love to live in that kind of world, you know? And I do think there are valid criticisms of wokeness, and there are some non-valid criticisms of wokeness as well, but I think some valid criticisms is that we run the risk of, um, of using identity as such a divider that um, we suddenly think we know the rest of a whole person, you know, and we can fill in the blanks too quickly based on uh, their uh, sort of level of oppression, 
you know, that, that we have we have said that, well, if you're this, you know, this kind of identity, then it's this level, le- bl- red <laughs> level. <laughs> if you're this, you're blue. Mm-hmm. If you're white, you know, you're at the, do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think we run a risk of further dividing people that way. That's not in common with my my mission uh, of, of a humanistic way of thinking about it. But No, I mean, I, we, and we all know people. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've bumped into my friends Coleman Hughes and Camille Foster, you know, John McWhorter. Let's post a picture of me and Camille just <laughs> Great. Two, two days ago. Right. Yeah. Well, he's a good buddy of mine. And, and you know, these are people who would, would readily say that they are not hopelessly disenfranchised and disadvantaged because of the color of their skin. There are challenges. There are challenges for everyone. There are challenges to being Jewish and there are challenges to being short. There are challenges to being ugly. There are challenges to being gay. There are challenges to being bad at sports. There are things that people are going to tease you for and pick on you for. And none of that is to say that those attributes are as, you know, as profound as the history of discrimination against African Americans over the, over the centuries. That's not my point. My point is that right now at a snapshot in time, when you look at the life challenges and life experiences of individual X, who is a, an Ivy League educated, highly articulate, professional black American and individual Y, who in 2022 is an uneducated white person from a mining fat family in the Midwest, that those two people, you can't just split them apart and say that the black person is disadvantaged and the white person has white privilege. That's far too simplistic. We all have our challenges. We all have our attributes. And if we're going to break things down on identitarian lines and favor some people over other people and privilege some categories over other categories because those categories have been historically disadvantaged, then I think you're opening a Pandora's box. I mean, my fear is that as someone who's very interested in history, a lot of people forget that in most times and most places, most of human history has been tribes of people warring with other tribes in a zero-sum game where they think that the pie is finite and they're just scrambling for the spoils. I mean, look at any empire, look at any civilization. These are places where people conceive of themselves primarily as members of a group or a clan, and they want to defend that clan. They want to defend that family and that tribe. And it has caused enormous hardship and stultification and backwardness. And the sort of revolution of the past few centuries in the West has been the Enlightenment idea that first and foremost, we should think of ourselves as individuals, we should treat each other on the merits, we should judge each other by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, as Martin Luther King said. And the idea that we would do away with that now, because so many work people think that that's naive, that you should be colorblind. It's naive to think that you should aspire towards a world in which people, the color of people's skin is about as relevant as the color of their hair, which is a world that I would like to see. The Wokarati will tell me that that's so naive that I'm basically a white supremacist for even suggesting it, and that we all have to think about ourselves as our clans. Well, I'm sorry, I may be a white guy, and I have that going for me, but I'm also gay, and I'm also a Jew, and I'm not crazy about fostering in a world. It hasn't gone so great for, for Jews and gays in the past when we've started encouraging straight white guys to think about themselves as straight white guys. Like, it's this is not a game that we want to start playing. This is not a Pandora's box that we want to start opening again. We've seen what happens. We've seen what happens when people think of themselves as, as members of a group instead of as individuals in a culture and a society where every individual is deserving of respect because they are an individual, not because they are a member of a disadvantaged class, not because they are a member of an oppressed class, because they are an individual. And I think we're getting to a point at which the backlash 
is a real risk. I mean, the thing that worries me the most about wokeness is is not the wokesters themselves. I don't think they're going to create an authoritarian Marxist regime. I think what they're going to do is alienate the middle America and middle Australia and middle Europe from the left and create a, an easy path for people like Trump or people more charismatic than Trump and savvier than Trump, like Tucker Carlson or whoever the you know next generation of uh, of right wing authoritarians could be, to to march into power like a cakewalk. Because once you start triggering people to think about themselves as members of a tribe, the majority tribe will start thinking about it. I mean, the the middle the the working class white guy is only going to last for so long with every single other rainbow coalition all having the right to defend their own interests and to think about themselves as a class of people but what i'm the only person says the straight white working class guy i'm the only i'm the member of the only class that can't be proud of itself everybody else gets to have a fucking day you got the puerto rico day you got the black lives matter you got the the gay pride month everyone gets to have a fucking party and i'm the only person in the world who doesn't get to be proud of being a white guy screw that i'm here as well camille made a very good point the other day um, and, and I've been thinking about it ever since. He said, well, why are we proud about our intrinsic characteristics that we had no choice over? And uh, shouldn't we be proud of like what we do in our lives, like w- the hard work we put into something? I, I just That point is I've just been just reflecting on it nonstop because I think about it in terms of like the, the gifted education community, right? Should you be proud if you're a gifted student? Like, it, it, like all the tests come easy to you, right? Like I would think I'd be more proud if I like – was not a gifted student right i put so much work into it and you know my character through my character Mm. you know i became something so i you know it's just i've been thinking about i've been been really reflecting on that um i I, I have more questions than answers but yeah it's so funny that you say that thing about pride scott because i just did an episode of uncomfortable conversations my very good podcast which everyone should uh, subscribe to right now you can pull your phone out of your uh, pants and uh and just click subscribe and and one episode that you should look for in addition to my terrific conversation with scott uh earlier is uh, a, a one a solo monologue that I basically did about gay pride. So the the podcast network was doing a big pride uh, sort of month where they would have podcasters from around the world on this pride train doing sort of monologues about how important pride was and what pride meant to them. And I was the person selected for to do the Australia one, and then you know I would hand off to some you know queer New York show. And everyone's doing this great, oh, you know, pride, 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 why pride's so important, why visibility's so important. And I was like the black sheep, of course, uh, always <laughs> always being the person with the contrarian opinion. Who, And I spoke for about, I think about an hour, about my thoughts about pride. And I made exactly that point that you're attributing to Camille there, which is I really think that pride ought to come from something over which you have some control. I mean, I don't feel ashamed of being gay. And I don't feel proud of being gay. I don't feel proud of being six foot. I don't feel proud of being white. Uh, These are just attributes. I mean, you know, I feel proud of what I've done. I feel proud of what I've accomplished. Now, if I were living in Nigeria, right, if I were living in a highly homophobic place, if I were living maybe in some deeply religious evangelical parts of the deep south still, then I understand the utility in, in confecting a notion of pride in order to counterbalance the shame with which gay people have been inculcated. But really, if you're listening to this podcast or if you're listening to my podcast, odds are 
you're living in a large metropolitan center in a reasonably, you know, forward thinking part of the world, you're probably in the West and you're probably in a place where if not right where you are right now, probably nearby, there's a significantly, there's a metropolis with a significant gay population. And I mean, let's face it, huge companies are run by gay people. I mean, Apple is run by gay people. Like I think Dow Chemicals is, is run by, you know, I mean, a, a gay, a gay guy. I mean, there, we are around, you know, media is saturated at the moment with gay stories. Every great Netflix hit seems to have, you know, non-binary or gay characters in it now. The one, one of the few things that you could say in an office situation that would get you hauled before HR would be to be openly homophobic about something. Or open, um, being, basically being openly homophobic or openly racist now are the worst mm. possible things that you, or openly sexist, are the worst possible things that you can be in a professional environment. Like at some point, you have to say, we've won. We really have won. Does that mean there's no homophobia? No, of course not. Does that mean there's no racism? No, of course not. But there's a lot of, you know, everyone's fighting battles. You know how much of a penalty it is to be short? You know how much of a penalty it is to be ugly? They've done studies. Short? I don't. I personally don't. You don't, know. of course, Scott, because you're you're a seven <laughs> foot Goliath. You're a beautiful man. I mean, you are just a you're a god, essentially. This Adonis. I'm sure it's very me. hard. But I'm sure it's very hard. Listen, it yeah. is diff. You know, they've done studies where where job candidates are discriminated against if they're short and ugly versus if they're tall and and beautiful. Like everyone has every there are penalties to, to to everything basically. And at some point my point about pride, don't be proud of shit that you can't control. Don't be proud of being pretty, don't be proud of being tall, don't be proud of being gay. It's all just they're all just attributes. Well, yes. I mean there are certain contexts and certain characteristics where if you said you're proud of them, you would come across as narcissistic by any reasonable standard of narcissism. But then there are other characteristics where where if you say them, you're exalted as enlightened or I guess woke. So there is kind of a, a hypocrisy there to a certain degree. Now, do am I saying, am I making the case that people who say they're proud of their sexuality are being narcissistic? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying from logic for logical consistency, right? Like why I'm just asking the question. I dare to ask questions. <laughs> this is my, I, I've done this ever since I was like two years old. Mm. I always wanted to know. And I was the kid in the classroom that was like, I have more questions than answers. I really do. Like, like for like why I always question things about logical consistency. I was like, mm. well, if you're going to say X, like, aren't you going to have to say Y too? And I feel like no one can kind of talk in that way these days right. without getting in trouble. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what my whole career is based on is asking those questions and making it okay to ask those questions and making it okay to hear answers from people who might be outside the mainstream or might not necessarily you know it's it's incredible to me that so many of us are talking on a predictable script at the moment scott like if i that's true and this is being worsened by social media it's being worsened by the mainstream media by fox news and by msnbc like it's extraordinary to me that if i ask you what you think about whether or not corporations pay enough tax i can probably tell from your answer what you think about climate change now why is that the two things are completely unrelated. Corporate taxation and the and climate science have nothing to do with each other. But the vast majority of people will have picked from column A or column B, and their tribe, their team, will have certain beliefs about a whole set of completely unrelated things, from inequality to climate science to transgenderism to whatever, and to religious freedom. And most people 
will fall predictably inside a silo of thought. They will, they have, they have inadvertently ticked a list of checkboxes about their beliefs and they've subscribed to a team that has a certain set of beliefs. That's why I so admire people like you and me and the other people who, who in our culture at the moment are making a concerted effort to escape the silo and to escape the checkbox and say, no, screw that. We don't have to play that game. We're allowed to have a bunch of different thoughts in our mind at the same time. We're allowed to explore wherever our curiosity goes. We're allowed to ask uncomfortable questions and have uncomfortable conversations, as the name of my podcast suggests. And we're allowed to hopscotch between the checklists. And has it, has there, point me to a time or a place in history where one side has had a monopoly on the truth and has been a hundred percent right. I can't think of one. I mean, right? So it's obvious that that would probably be true right now. And it's highly likely that the current progressive woke orthodoxy has some flaws. And it's highly likely that the current conservative orthodoxy has some flaws. So if you believe either of them wholeheartedly, you are wrong a significant portion of the time. So if you're truly an independent thinker and if you value reason and you value the virtue of conversation and of, of, of intellectual thought, you're going to find yourself being the target of hate campaigns from one side or another because your, your opinions are just not going to align neatly with the two silos that we've created. And that's a good thing. I think part of the frustration of being a free thinker, and I wouldn't want to be any other way, but is that I don't, I don't even like reducing people to the idea of like woke people, because there are certain things that I'm sure I could say that would make me sound extraordinarily woke, you know, and I'm sure there are things I would say that would make me sound very different than woke. I like to kind of mix and match different things based on what I think of them independently of each other. So I really like to mix and match different, well, political policies. I like to mix, mix and match things that some people would call wokes with some things that they would kind of do. If things make sense to me, they make sense to me. There are things coming from the so-called woke people that make a lot of sense to me. And there are a lot of things that come from the so-called woke people that don't make sense to me. I think it's just a shame that we live in a climate where you have to pick a side. And then when you pick that side, you have to agree with everything on that side. <laughs> and if you decided you're not on the other side, you have to disagree with everything on the other side. That's what infuriates me. Yes. So how do we de-escalate that? Well, maybe I, I hope the kind of conversations we're having, uh, I hope more people can have honest, compassionate conversations like this that, that, that are in the, in the nuance zone or in the gray zone. That would certainly be one way. But also, you know, like people like Andrew Yang is trying to form a whole third party, you know, the forward party, because he's just like, well, we, the, creating this binary is, is not good for him. So maybe can we stop just pitting binaries against each other and uh, yeah. have what Abraham Maslow called dichotomy transcendence. That's the phrase he used, which I love that. <laughs> that's great. Yes. That's just a fancy way of saying having two ideas in your head at the same time, right? Or more than two ideas in your head at the same time. I do think that on a personal level, people often ask me what I think the solution is. And as you say, there might be structural or political solutions like a third party I think on a human level, on an everyday level, the best thing to do is to try to note when you're not being generous hmm. to people you disagree with, to their ideas, when you're caricaturing them. I think that's the most useful thing because so frequently, like I was, I was pitching a show, uh, an idea on my radio show. I wanted to do a segment about nuclear power the other day. Hmm. Now, one of my producers is young, a young woke female. I said, if we're going to be serious about climate change and about fighting the fighting climate chaos, then I want to understand why 
the environmental left is still so opposed to nuclear power because my understanding is that new nuclear reactors are extremely safe. You know, you're not going to get a Chernobyl again if it were using the new designs in, you know, right. and setting them up the way that Western liberal democracies would. So what exactly is the objection if this is going to be a, a you know, our ticket, a short term, you know, maybe we only use them for 100 years until renewables get better, until batteries get better. What exactly is the objection? Is it rational or is it a kind of a super, an anti-nuclear superstition? Because I've read things online that lead me to believe that, that nuclear power is safe. And she rolls her eyes a little bit, this producer, and goes, mm -hmm. and she goes, uh, yeah, I've been to that segment of the internet as well. Mm. As mm. if to say, mm. there's this segment of the internet that is easily dismissible, mm. where right-wing idiots are promoting nuclear power. But I don't really have to investigate that, because I just sort of know that it's wrong. Now, that, to me, is an example of where you should catch yourself. and go. Well, that's not free thinking. That's not, not free thinking. It's not. Again, it's... I'm inside this silo. Of course, it doesn't occur that way to her. To her, it occurs that she's being enlightened and she believes in justice and environmental equity. And these other people are finding pretexts to promote something that is environmentally damaging. But constantly catching yourself in those moments where you're dismissing something you disagree with and going, well, hang on, have I given it the benefit of the doubt here? Have I really done the work to actually hear out what the, what its most logical proponents are saying? Am I meeting them as close to the edge of what I think is reasonable from their perspective as I can go without losing my own, you know, credibility or intellectual credibility? That's what I'm always trying to do. Whoever I'm talking to, I'm trying to see the world through their eyes and give them as much ground as possible so that I'm not creating a straw man of their ideas. Because that not only makes it easier to find compromises and to conciliate and to have a healthy, flourishing democracy and culture, but it also makes my ideas much stronger. Yeah. I mean, if I don't understand what the opponents, what my opponents really believe, then I don't really know why I believe what I believe either. I mean, I have to be able to defend my positions in the face of the most power of the strongest opposition to them, not the weakest. So it makes no sense for me to go around only knocking over the weakest version of my opponent's arguments. I have to be able to take down the strongest ones. So I have to hear them. I have to engage with them. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. I have to sort of assume that they are right to some extent and then start picking apart what's wrong with their ideas from inside the worldview that they have, not just firing arrows at their at their opinions and at their positions from my point of view, that's going to get us nowhere. So when I think about the solution to this, I think we need to change the incentives of social media companies to for them to make them as much money as they do just on the amount of time that people spend on the site because the algorithms are just extremification machines that make us you know that make us crave posts that are that either we agree with or that we really vehemently disagree with you know nuance is not rewarded on social media so no. you need to change that and you need to change the way that we interact with each other so that just on a personal level we're doing less dismissing of positions that we think are wrong That's or evil and more understanding of those positions, even if it means that, that we're not going to be won over by them. I, I think that is three quarters of the battle. Well, that's it. But my default is that I just, I have a radically open mind that, so I feel like whenever I'm talking to someone and they say something to me, I don't care how ridiculous it sounds, I take it 
in, I process it, and I think, huh, that's interesting. Let me see what the evidence is. But that's my 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 default. I don't know why I'm so weird in that. Why, or or how, is that? <laughs> how about this? Why is everyone else so weird? Why is why yeah. isn't everyone like that? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, no, I think you are weird, and I think I am. Weird. Yeah, I think we can take that I mean? just in the sense of being not normal. I mean, most people yeah. are tribal. Homo sapiens are tribal. We're primates. We want to be in the clan. And yeah. people like you, you like you and me, for some reason, either don't have that jigsaw piece or we think that it's virtuous to overcome it. I think in my case, it's just that I try to be virtuous in overcoming it. I, mm. I, I don't, I don't lack the temptation to join a club. I have, I feel the I, temptation. Uh, well, and, I, and I regard it as being pernicious. And so I try mm. to run, run from it. I think in my case, I'm just radically curious. And right. that's just, that's my default state of being that just trumps everything else. I mean, I'm mm. just trying to think of like, you could say something that a horrible, horrible thing that, and I'd be like, huh, is that true? <laughs> mm, mm, <laughs> like, mm. like, I, like, like you're not even supposed to entertain that certain horrible things could even be true. And yeah, you know, like, uh, I, I don't want to start making examples, but no, it, sure. like, do you know, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I just like that my default is, is that like if I process the information and I don't process it through a lens of like, oh, what should I not entertain? What should I entertain? What should I? That's what a good philosopher or psychologist yeah. does, right? I mean, yeah. and this, you know, if you don't want to give any examples, I'll give an example that I'm stealing from my friend give Sam Harris. He, he won't mind. But Sam says, you know, part of the point of philosophy is that you're you're supposed to entertain outrageous ideas. You might be in a philosophy class and the professor might say, you know, why is it wrong to eat dead babies, right? Mm. I mean, like the babies are already dead. You know, we're, we have them, they're edible, they're nutritious, they're high in protein. If the parents are okay with it or if the parents are dead as well because they all died in a car accident or something, uh, this is food. Mm. Why are we wasting resources producing other food when we already have these dead babies that we could be eating? And he makes the point that if you were to just grab that that line from the philosophy professor mm. and pull it out of context and put it on social media and say, oh, why aren't we gosh. eating dead babies, right? Then yeah. all yeah. of a sudden that would just sound like the most horrendous thing. But in order yeah. to understand why we value what we value and why our moral universe looks the way it does, you actually do have to push at the edges of it with questions like that. And then, of course, someone cheekily made a meme that went on social media of Sam Harris saying, why can't we just eat dead babies with a, with a picture, <laughs> oh, an ominous looking God. picture of Sam Harris's face. So, but that, that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. I mean, you have to, I, I agree, you have to be able to entertain any and all questions. Uh, otherwise, you're just floating along on a bunch of inherited assumptions and you're not actually getting to the crux of why we believe what we believe. Yeah. And how can we separate the search for truth from like the compassion issue is that's a different issue to me. Like I'll entertain anything, but then like, if you started to say like, okay, well, this is true, but then there's implications for hurting people. Well, then something else clicks in, in my head. Like there are different things that click in at different times, right? Like I'm right. a caring human. I'm a caring human, but I also care about the truth. Like, why can't we have both? <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. My man, you said you had to go to a meeting at four fifteen. Is that is that? I I, I do, and Un unfortunately, I have to produce a radio show. I do three hours of live uh, call wow. radio uh, a day on ABC Radio in Australia, ABC Radio Sydney. So wow. I'd like I could just stay here all day and chat with you. But it was super alas, fun. It was super. Other fun. people want to hear these dulcet tones as well. 
Yes, I, I got you. I don't want to hog you all to myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really uh, appreciate you having this conversation with me and uh, being able to talk in the gray zone. It's, it's very refreshing when I can talk to someone in the gray zone. It's, it's great to talk to you, yeah. Scott. I came off uh, when, when you were on my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, which people yeah. can check out. It's a great uh, because you'll get insights into Scott that you, you may not otherwise have. I came off that recording and yeah, it was like I was floating along on a on a cloud. It was really great. It's just oh. lovely to throw ideas around with you. I think you're you're a terrific asset, and and the, and the contribution that you're making is fantastic. We need more people like uh, like you throwing ideas at the wall and just having these conversations that are that are stimulating and and you know free from free from the usual nonsense. Well, thank you, Josh. Well, all the best to you. <laughs> <laughs> terrific. Thanks, Scott. Love you, mate. Thank you. Take care. Right. Cheers. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.